Hey, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10, we're working through this incredible book, the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to look at Cornelius. It's an incredible story here of his conversion. And uh, this is going to take place in Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at it this week and next week. And the title for the sermon this morning is Progressive Revelation. Progressive Revelation, Acts chapter 10. Let me read to you verses 1 through 23. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his household, all his household, and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice that came to him again in a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to dive in Acts chapter 10 to read the first half of this incredible conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion who we know, those of us who have read this before, that he's going to come to Christ, become a believer, the gospel's being extended to the Gentile world. What an incredible transition in the book of Acts to see the gospel continuing to go forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I pray that today that you would open up our hearts so that we might learn what you want us to learn and to live out our faith in a way that we could be unified together with brothers and sisters of different walks of life, of different color, of different cultures, that we would be one in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, most people love a good mystery. People wonder who Jack the Ripper really was. Or did Amelia Earhart crash into the sea or become a castaway on some desert island? Or whatever happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? But certain mysteries are mysteries no more. Thanks to scientific tools that didn't exist during the time of the occurrences, investigations have been able to figure out the solutions of some of the earlier puzzles. Yet in some cases, people don't want to believe in the proof or or the revelation, particularly if it is a disappointing or a simple explanation. Let me give you three former unsolved mysteries for which 
we now have a solution. I'm going to illustrate it using the screen. Here's the first one. That first slide, if you will, says, what is the secret of the Bermuda Triangle? You ever wondered what in the world's going on with the Bermuda Triangle? Well, the legend of the Bermuda Triangle began with the unexplained disappearances of a group of military planes carrying 14 men off the coast of South Florida in December of 1945. We are entering white water. Nothing seems right, the flight leader supposedly said on the radio before all contact was lost. Thirteen more servicemen went to search for the missing flyers who also vanished. The Bermuda Triangle is an area of water you see there on the screen between Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda that, according to pop mythology, contains some sort of evil force that causes planes, ships, and people to disappear, never to be seen again. Some have put the blame on extraterrestrial invaders capturing humans for study, or on interdimensional vortices, or even on oceanic flatulence, which is methane gas erupting from the ocean's sediments. That's kind of gross. But back in 1975, librarian and pilot Lawrence David Kush published his investigation of the phenomena when he was actually reviewing all of the official reports on the ships that paranormal authors had depicted as vanishing inexplicably. He found that they usually sank in bad weather or suffered explainable accidents and that the wreckage sometimes was recovered. Similarly, the U.S. Coast Guard's website notes that the service does not recognize the existence of the so-called Bermuda Triangle as a geographic area of specific hazard to ships or planes, and says that after reviewing all the accidents there, nothing has been found that couldn't be explained. What are we saying? I'm just saying it's a pop myth that the Bermuda Triangle is going to suck you up and take you away to somewhere where you'll never be seen again. Another mystery that has been revealed would be what causes the sailing stones to move? Ever seen this one? These sailing stones. Since the 1940s, people have been scratching their heads about the apparently strange phenomenon in a dry lake bed in Death Valley called the Racetrack Playa. There, every 10 years or so, stones as big as 700 pounds mysteriously seem to move around on their own, leaving long tracks behind them in the parched desert surface. Over the years, various explanations from dust devils to films of slippery algae have been proposed, but none of them seem too convincing. Finally, in year 2011, researchers from Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, decided to solve the enigma. Since the National Park Service wouldn't allow them to attach GPS devices to the rocks themselves, they brought in 15 similarly sized pieces of stone and monitored them. It took two years, but they finally got the answer. In wintertime, the playa becomes, uh, fills up with a thin layer of water from rainfall, which freezes overnight and forms thin sheets of ice. When the sun comes out the next day, the ice melts and cracks into panels that light winds then blow across the ice, carrying the rocks forward. The stones typically slide at a speed of only a few inches per second, slowly enough so that the visitors can't really see the movement from a distance. Or how about number three, another mystery that's been solved, how were the pyramids built? How were they built? Well, back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, proponents of the hypothesis that human civilization had been jump-started by extraterrestrial visitors pointed to the Egyptian pyramids as persuasive evidence. The ancient Egyptians could not have moved those massive multi-ton stone blocks with just muscle power. They argued that and suggested that there must have been some type of alien anti-gravity technology, and that was a more plausible explanation. Fortunately, in 2014, the University of Amsterdam physicists materialized to rescue us from this kind of paperback pseudoscience. By analyzing an ancient tomb drawing, they figured out that a large team of workers could have hauled the giant stone blocks on a sled and poured water on the sand in their path to reduce the friction and to make it possible to drag the blocks over the long road. Other researchers have also suggested that the Egyptians used clay as a lubricant, and it may be that they used more than one method. Well, 
Since this isn't a class on unsolved mysteries, it just gives you a little taste of why we understand that the solved mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle, the sailing stones, and the building of the Egyptian pyramids, this, these mysteries are certainly interesting, but none of them are as important is understanding the mystery that is revealed in Acts chapter 10. This chapter is one of the most important chapters in the entire book of Acts. In fact, I would say that this chapter is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament because it brings to our attention an extremely important movement in redemptive history. This chapter ushers in a time of revelation and transition from the old covenant way of doing things to the new covenant emphasis of God's redemptive activity. We are moving away from a focus on God's ethnic people of Israel to God's elect people of both Jews and Gentiles coming into the church. What I'm talking about this morning is put into perspective from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27, where Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose, no, chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In this letter to the Colossians, Paul reveals a mystery had been hidden for ages. In the New Testament, a mystery is something that God has held back but at a certain time reveals openly. This particular mystery is that Gentiles, through the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit, have become part of the New Testament church. Up until this time, Gentiles were considered outside of the scope of the covenant that God made with Abraham and with Moses, and therefore they were without hope. And when Christ inaugurated the new covenant with his blood, the barrier between Jew and Gentile was broken and hope was extended to the Gentiles. And much of us in the church today are from a Gentile type background, but we are included in the church because of what took place in Cornelius's household in Caesarea. The story of Cornelius and his family is your story. If you are a Gentile who is in Christ this morning, and when I say by way of title, the title of the message, Progressive Revelation, I simply mean that the ongoing of God's special revelation to man through his word continued until the canon of scripture was closed with the last book of the Bible. That means that the church didn't fully understand all that God wanted it to until the entire canon of scripture was completed. So here in Acts chapter 10, we are learning new things. We are seeing new things and understanding new things that change the way that God's people had been living for centuries. This morning, we're going to learn about this progressive revelation as we look at these three headings together, the heavenly vision of Cornelius, verses 1 through 8, the heavenly vision of Peter, verses 9 through 16, and then the heavenly vision of the unity of the church, verses 17 through 23. Let's start with number one, the heavenly vision of Cornelius and verses one through eight. First blank, if you're taking notes this morning, says the character of Cornelius. The character of Cornelius, verses one through two. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. We see here this area known as Caesarea. It was originally known as Strato's Tower, which Caesar Augustus gave to Herod the Great 30 years before Jesus was born. And in return, Herod wanted to please Caesar Augustus, and so he named this city 
after him. And he rebuilt from that tower, kind of a military post, he rebuilt it as a thriving city and named it Caesarea, again, after Caesar. And he wanted to make it a showcase of the East. And in a 12-year period, Herod constructed a theater, an amphitheater, public buildings, a race course, a palace, an aqueduct, and a magnificent harbor. And all of these things are still on display today in Caesarea. I've seen them along with the longs and the others who went with us to Israel a couple of years ago, right? We saw it with our own eyes. All of these things, it's just amazing to see the ruins that still exist of this incredible city. This city flourished. Greek culture and Roman influence drew a mixed population to this beautiful Mediterranean city. Among these people was the Roman governor Pilate, who had his residence and the headquarters there in Caesarea. And even though Greeks and Romans and other nationalities represented a major part of the population, Jews continued in an influential and powerful minority. Serving with the Italian regiment was a centurion, who we're talking about today. In essence, this guy named Cornelius was a non-commissioned officer who commanded a hundred soldiers. The name Cornelius was common in Roman circles and points to the fact that he was indeed a Roman citizen. We also learn from Luke's description that Cornelius lived in a large house and that he had many servants. And during his years of service in the Roman army, he no doubt accumulated great wealth as well as some measure of prestige. It should be noted that in other places where centurions are mentioned in Scripture, they are always mentioned with utmost respect. Do you remember how Jesus interacted with a centurion in Mark chapter 8, verses 5 through 10? It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, came to Jesus, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, go to this one and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, no one in Israel with no one in Israel Have I found such faith? Again, the temptation may be to think, well, these are Roman soldiers. These are all bad dudes. And we know that many Roman soldiers did indeed exploit Jews with great violence and harm. But I'm just saying, every time you see the word centurion, it's a little bit more of a respected leader who potentially had the ability to curb his passions and to act appropriately and to try to promote peace in this province of Israel. But we also read in Matthew 27, verse 54, about another centurion. Matthew 27, 54 says, when the centurion and all those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this must be the Son of God. So we've already read about two centurions that interacted with Jesus once during his ministry, once during his death while he's on the cross, that apparently might have indeed come to saving faith. So we read here in verse 2, here's our third centurion, Cornelius. He's a devout man. This word devout means that he's being profoundly reverent or respectful. It also means to be devoted to a proper expression of religious beliefs. It can be translated as to be godly. This word is found only here and in verse 7, devout, is found here, verse 7, as well as in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly or the devout from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so we see the Bible treasures this word to talk about people who truly have a great respect, fear, and awe of God. And apparently Cornelius had become somewhat acquainted with the Jewish religion living there in Israel, and he had apparently embraced that religion to some degree as one who feared God. Now, of course, fearing God in this context means to have a profound measure of respect for. Most likely, Cornelius had attended the Sabbath worship services in the local synagogue and observed the Sabbath day of rest. 
He also likely kept at least some of the Jewish dietary laws, as we see here, and he gave generously to the poor, and he also prayed daily. As far as we can tell, Cornelius did not do three things. He did not, according to chapter 11, get circumcised. He did not become baptized, not up to this point, and he did not offer sacrifices at the temple. And so in all of this, Cornelius followed the example of numerous Gentiles who worshiped God and who leaned into some of Judaism, but had not formally been admitted entirely into the Jewish community. At the same time, not everyone who believes in God is a Christian, right? So we're saying at this point, Cornelius doesn't have all the information he needs to be a true blood-bought son of God adopted into his family. Just because he fears God, it doesn't mean he is a genuine believer. Certainly, you could reference something like James 2.19, where it says, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. So not everybody who leaned into a little bit to the God of the Jews was automatically a Christian. I'm just saying Cornelius wasn't saved yet. You can have a respected position in the community. You could be devout in your beliefs. You could be a respecter of God and a respecter of persons. You could give alms to the poor. You could say your prayers. But if you have not been saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, then you have not yet been regenerated or given new life. So we see here about his character. Let's look secondly at his call. Talking about Cornelius, verses three through four. Your next blank, the calling of Cornelius. Having trouble saying that word this morning. Verses three and four. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, the text says this is the ninth hour of the day, according to the Jewish calendar, keeping time, it would start at 6 a.m., so the ninth hour would be around 3 p.m., 3 p.m. At this time, Cornelius saw an angel in a vision who called him by name, Cornelius. In verse 30, Cornelius says, as he recites the story, he said it was a man standing before him in bright clothing. We know that angels are messengers from God. Salvation is a divine work of grace, but God works through human channels. Angels can deliver God's messages to lost men, but they do not preach the gospel to them. That is our privilege and our responsibility. There's no example of an angel preaching until you get to the book of Revelation, and that would be during the tribulation. But here before Christ's second coming, or before the rapture, I should say, there's no angels preaching the gospel. That's our job. But they come giving special information, and it's obvious this angel's trying to connect Peter with Cornelius so that the gospel would indeed be preached. Cornelius responded as the angel spoke to him. He stared at him in terror. And we know Cornelius was a seasoned soldier. He had certainly seen and experienced the horrors of war. And yet the text says that he was in terror, meaning he was much alarmed. Zechariah in the Jerusalem temple and Mary and Nazareth both had seen the angel Gabriel appear to them, and they were also greatly afraid. As a result, the angel had to tell them not to fear. And Cornelius is responding in this same way, in terror. And then he says, what is it, Lord? Perhaps Cornelius meant Lord as sir. Maybe Cornelius didn't know if it was an angel or the Lord Jesus or just another messenger I mean, even John in the book of Revelation got confused with the revelation of an angel in Revelation 22, 8 through 9, where he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and prophets and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So I'm just saying, don't give Cornelius a hard time for calling the angel Lord, because even John, the apostle, called an angel Lord on the Isle of Patmos and had to be reminded, hey, we just worship God, we don't worship angels. Now, this angel knew Cornelius' name, and the angel was quick 
to reassure Cornelius by saying to him, your prayers and your alms have been ascended, have ascended as a memorial before God. And this simply means that God was very aware of Cornelius's heart. Cornelius had responded well to the light that he had received, and now God is going to give him more light. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. And just like when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, Jesus revealed more gospel truth to him. My friends, the same is true today. The more you want to see, the more God will show you. The more you lean in, the more he will reveal himself to you. And the way that we lean in is by the scripture, meditating on the word, ruminating on the word, worshiping him on our face before God. Cornelius certainly was leaning into spiritual things and God's like, you know what? I like this guy. I'm gonna continue to reveal myself to him. Now we know in the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election that God had determined from eternity past to choose Cornelius. But I'm just saying from a human standpoint, there's still this beautiful um, seeker And again, we know that there's none who seeks after God in one sense, but in another sense, it's like God's working on his heart. God's revealing more of his truth. And as Cornelius' heart is softened, he leans in more, he wants more, and it's clear that God is encouraged by this. And and yet at the same time, we're hold to what God's word says, John 6, 44. Jesus said, no one can come unto me unless the father who sent me draws him. But despite Cornelius' sincerity, And his devotion to the true God, he could not be saved apart from the correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God was arranging to prepare him with that knowledge. Acts 4.12 says, and there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name given under heaven by which men, uh, given among men by which we must be saved. And so we understand Cornelius is close. But he's not there yet. He needs the full gospel. And my friends, don't assume today as you're evangelizing or witnessing to people at work or at school that just because they say they know God and just because they say they go to church and just because they're familiar with some of the practices that we have as Christians that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the character of Cornelius. We're seeing the calling of Cornelius. Let's now look at the compliance of Cornelius. He obeys the instructions that he's given here in verses five through eight. And now send men to Joppa, the angel said, and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him and when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Again, We don't know the exact content of Cornelius' prayers as he prayed to the Lord, but it does seem as though it is possible, it's reasonable to suspect that he was praying for more revelation from God, for more understanding, for more information about God's character, God's grace, and God's salvation, which can only come from God's hand. And so Cornelius immediately sends men to Joppa to look for Peter. Cornelius is stepping out in faith, One day at a time, one step at a time. God does not instruct Cornelius to travel to Joppa himself to meet Peter. Rather, Cornelius is to send his men to Peter and ask him to come to a Gentile home in Caesarea. And this is significant, as we have already learned, that the apostles Peter and John had gone into Samaria and welcomed the Samaritans as full members of the church. So here will we see Peter travel to Caesarea and welcome the Gentiles as full members of Christ's church. Now Joppa was located about 30 miles south of Caesarea, so it would have taken them about two to two and a half days to get there and get back if they traveled by foot. The men were to invite Simon, who was called Peter, to the home of Cornelius. Note that the angel used the Hebrew name Simon. We call him Simon Peter. Simon is Hebrew. Peter is his Greek name. But the angel says the Hebrew name Simon, many believe, to indicate that Cornelius would indeed be asking a Jew to enter into his Gentile home. They would find him lodging with another Simon. So we got two Hebrew names here, Simon Peter and then Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. 
Cornelius, being the head of his house, who had been used to giving the orders, immediately sent two of his servants along with another devout soldier immediately to Joppa. Again, I appreciate how Cornelius obeyed the angel right away. He did exactly what God told him to do. He didn't linger. He didn't argue. He didn't ask further questions. He just did what he was called to do. This reminds me of Abraham in Genesis 22, where we read, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am, Lord. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall send you. And Abraham waited a month. Is that what the text says? You remember the story, right? What does it say? And Abraham rose early in the morning. And he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. These are examples of incredible obedience. Abraham obeyed right away. Cornelius obeyed right away. Another story about immediate obedience might be the wedding in Cana where they ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him in John 2, they have no more wine. And then we understand that he said, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Again, another example, this doesn't make much sense this water that's going to be taken to the master of the ceremonies, and yet we see again immediate obedience. This is what God's called us to. He's called us just to obey him, to obey his word at all times, to the full degree. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let me just ask you this morning, church, how are you doing in obeying God's word? Do you struggle, as I do, with certain areas of obedience? Are you seeking to obey as we tried to teach our kids to obey right away, to obey all the way, and to obey, I see a mom down here mouthing it with me, and to obey with a happy heart, right? That's what God's called us to, to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. This is the heart of the true disciple. We're saying Cornelius isn't quite saved yet, but we got to love this guy's character. We've got to appreciate his interest. We've got to be convicted by his, his outward obedience, and certainly we want to see his heart transformed. And so that's a little bit about the heavenly vision of Cornelius. And now let's look at number two in your outline, the heavenly vision of Peter, verses 9 through 16. Your first blank under the second heading would be the opening of the sheet. The opening of the sheet, verses 9 through 12, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So we see on the very next day, as the servants from Cornelius were approaching Joppa, Peter went up onto the housetop about noon. This would be about the sixth hour. So if it starts at 6 a.m. for the Jewish calendar, this would be at noon. So it's around lunchtime, even though they would often eat a little bit later in the afternoon for their Mediterranean uh, meal habit times. But either way, Peter's hungry. He's seeking a private place to spend with the Lord. Those Palestinian houses in those days had outside staircases that led to flat roofs where people could go up and hang out. They could go there for a siesta during a hot afternoon or just go there to enjoy the cool breeze from the Mediterranean Sea during the day. And Peter here is seeking a time of private prayer, but he's hungry. And when you pray and you're hungry, things happen. And that's what he's doing. He's praying. He's hungry. I, I think it's also interesting that he went up there around the sixth hour because there are some Jewish habits of praying three times a day, morning, in the middle of the day, and at the end of the day. We see that in Psalm 55, 17. talks about three times of prayer for the Jewish. It says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. 
So the psalmist says he prays in the evening, in the morning, and at noon. We also read about that in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees three times a day. And he prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. So Peter's following in the same habit, praying three times a day. And as Peter was praying, he became hungry and wanted something to eat. So while they're preparing the meal, again, he falls into this trance. Now the word trance there means a vision. He was in and out of consciousness. He's seeing and hearing things that God's revealing to him. He's not all there. This is a divine trance or a divine vision. And at that moment, he sees the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet was being let down from heaven. Some of the commentaries say it might have been something like a big sail. Could have been looking out across the sea and see different ships going by. So there's something like this big sheet or a big sail that was lowered down from heaven. The sheet was lowered down by its four corners. And while uh, it's not mentioned here that those were angels holding the sheet, that's what some would presume. The purpose of the presentation, though, is to indicate that the spectacle originates in heaven, not on earth. This isn't an earthly effort to reach heaven. This is a heavenly decision to reach down to reveal something to earth. In other words, this has certainly been ordained by God. And when the sheet comes into closer view, Peter sees that it contains all kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles, and the birds of the air. There are no creatures from the sea represented in this sheet, but all other creatures that God created are present in this large open container. In some ways, this may remind us of all of the creatures that were in the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 20, it says, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. All we're saying is the sheet has no water animals, the ark had no water animals, but everything else God created was there to be seen. The sheet contains both clean, here's the important part, all right? The sheet contains both clean and unclean animals. It contains sheep, which are clean, and swine, which are unclean. It contains the cow, which was clean and edible for a good steak, and it contained the camel, which was not edible. It contains the chicken, which we can eat at Chick-fil-A, except on Sunday, and it contained the eagle, which was considered to be unclean. It contained the locusts, which were clean. John the Baptist ate them, right? And the beetle, which is unclean. And so all of these clean and unclean animals can be read about in Leviticus chapter 11. Like I read through that in my quiet time this week. I'm in Leviticus. One of my sons told me, Dad, Leviticus is so boring. And I'm like, I know. I mean, I know. I know it's not boring. It's not, but it's always interesting things to learn, right? Especially Leviticus 16 is the day of atonement, right? But this is all building into us understanding there is a point to the dietary specifications that's given under the Old Covenant. In Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14, go into great detail for Moses to explain what they could and could not eat. I'm going to talk more about that here in a moment. But let's move on to our next blank and look at the conversation about the sheet. The conversation about the sheet, verses 13 through 15. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we have a conversation about what Peter sees in this sheet and what he's to understand about the sheet. And in these verses, we see the tension that exists in Peter's heart between the old covenant and the new covenant. I mean, remember, in the Old Testament, God had indeed instructed the Jews to separate themselves from the Gentiles by eating kosher food. Jewish people would not think of entering into the home of a Gentile or eating and drinking with them ever. Jews also refused to buy their meat from a Gentile butcher and at all costs avoided polluting themselves with something that was ritually unclean. Again, the reason for these strict dietary laws are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 20. You can just listen if you want to know, well, what's the big deal? Why was God doing this? In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 25 through 26, it says, 
You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord your God, am a holy God, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So it may sound complicated, but it's actually very simple. God just says, I just want you to be different. I want you to be separate. I don't want you to do everything all the nations around you do. Now, there's certainly different dietitians today who could point to the fact that potentially some of the diet could have been cleaner and could have been better. But if you start going down that path, be careful because Jesus is about to wreck your diet plan when he says, kill and eat. All right, so it doesn't have to just be sprouted grains and Ezekiel bread. Though I had me some of that yesterday, it's pretty good. You know, but the point we're trying to make is God just wanted them to be separate. He just said, I just want you to be different. It was imperative that Israel be kept separate from the idolatrous Gentile neighbors around them. And so these dietary restrictions would limit social interactions with those outside the camp. Maybe the best argument would just be, I don't want you hanging out with them. I don't want you going in their homes. I don't want you eating with them. I don't want you partying with them. You guys need to be separate because if they intermingled with these pagan people, they might be distracted from worshiping the one true God. So it's a real simple principle of separation. You're to be different because you're to be mine. And in order to make sure you're different, I'm gonna set up dietary restrictions to have two separate groups of people because that's what God chose to do. But with the coming of the new covenant, there is a special emphasis on the church, which is all about focusing on the heart and not about outward dietary practices or circumcision or other old covenant things. So Jesus gives the clear instructions as we see here in this verse. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so in this context, Jesus is telling Peter that the old covenant dietary restrictions are over. It's time to eat whatever you want. Somebody said amen, come on. It's time to eat whatever you want. Amen, Amen. all right, thank you, thank you. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, it's time to kill and eat whatever you want. Jesus had already said this. Did you know earlier he made this same declaration in Mark chapter 7? Turn there with me real quick if you want. Mark chapter 7, verses 15 through 19. I think I preached a message on this at the beginning of this year. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then read the parentheses because it's also inspired. What does it say? Thus, he declared all foods clean. So Jesus had already hinted at this during his time on earth, and now he is commanding it from heaven. And Peter's response is, verse 14, is understandable, and it's shocking at the same time when he says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So the problem with this is that you never say no to the Lord. It doesn't matter what it is. The understandable part of what Peter was saying is that he had always obeyed all the dietary laws of the old covenant for his whole life. And from the time he was a little boy, he had only eaten what he was permitted to eat. He had never eaten anything common or unclean. The word common there could also be translated as that which was unacceptable, defiled, or profane. So think of it more as a synonym with unclean, common and unclean. Common is a bad thing. It was unacceptable, defiled, or profane. And Peter's like, I've never eaten anything like that. And old habits are hard to break, especially when you've been doing it in order to honor the Lord. But the old covenant and all of its regulations 
were fulfilled perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those things were all of a shadow pointing to something greater. And that something is a somebody and his name is Jesus. And because of Jesus, the old covenant has now passed away. Hebrews says it's become obsolete. It's no longer needed because we have something that has replaced it that is the new covenant. And so it's time for a stark lesson of us as New Testament believers to understand the new covenant and its focus is on the gospel and on the church. It's not on dietary practices and different ethnicities. It's on the gospel and the church. And so the Lord doubled down on his statement in verse 15 when he says, the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This couldn't be more clear. God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong, what is clean and what is unclean, what is sanctified behavior and what is sinful behavior. And our job is to listen and obey. None of us can say to God, well, I don't like that rule about gender. I don't like that rule about sexuality. I don't like that rule about when life begins. We know it begins at conception. These aren't political issues. These are moral issues out of the Bible. And it is our job, if we claim to love Christ, to follow him and to obey him in every way. And he's just kind of making it clear here. Hey, you don't talk back to God. I'm the one who's going to tell you what to do, and you're going to do it if you're going to be a follower of me. Our job is to listen and to obey. Now, on a less passionate note, I would say certainly this is a reminder to all of us today that killing and eating animals is not a sin. In fact, it was something that Christ commanded Peter to do. And if you are here this morning and you are a vegan or a vegetarian, I want to say that you are free in Christ to make that choice, and I support you. (laughs) And I love you. And you're more than welcome to make that decision. It is not unbiblical to be a vegan or a a vegetarian. I I support you 100% if your preference is for that and you're committed to that and it could be your health or just a personal preference, 100% support. But please do not think of yourselves as being more loving to animals, more holy in your eating habits, or more pleasing to the Lord. Christ never commands anything that is unloving. So when Jesus tells Peter to kill and eat, that is not an unloving act. That's what Jesus tells him to do. And we can all exercise our Christian liberties however we want, as long as we're seeking to glorify God, to be good stewards of our health, and desiring to love and support others who make different decisions for different reasons. Can we just agree on that? We can all be friends. We don't have to laugh and mock the vegetarian or the vegan. And certainly we're not going to laugh and mock the person who eats bacon. And if you eat a lot of bacon, maybe you need to be vegan. It probably (laughs) probably going to help a little bit with your cholesterol, right? So I'm just saying we can all more be lighthearted about these dietary things. And yet here in the scripture, it's pretty strong language in this conversation between Peter and and Christ. And so let's make sure that we understand that we are to love one another. We're to honor Christ in our fellowship together. And no matter what we eat or drink, we are to do it to the glory of God. Speaking of food, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, you thought I was going to say I'm getting hungry, didn't you? No. All right. Speaking of food, 1 Timothy 4.4 4 says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. What a great principle to keep in mind. Let's look at verse 16, the repetition of the sheet, repetition of the sheet. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Well, in his resistance, Peter was being scrupulous beyond the will of God, and to make sure that Peter got the picture, this vision happened, according to verse 16, it happened three times. There may have been some type of link between Peter's own threefold denial of Christ and his three affirmations of his love for the Lord. Three times Peter denied Christ, and after the resurrection, three times Peter affirmed his love for Christ. When the Lord speaks, he only has to speak once. 
But this also shows the grace of God and the patience of God and the clarity to what was being addressed. Well, we've seen the heavenly vision of Cornelius. We've seen the heavenly vision of Peter. Let's look now at the heavenly vision of the unity of the church. Verses 17 through 18. Your next blank says, Peter is perplexed about the vision. Verses 17 and 18. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out, to ask whether Peter, who was called, whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So again, Peter, he saw the vision three times. He's still perplexed about it, making sense of the vision. Exactly what does this mean? At that very moment, the men arrived from Cornelius. And Peter knew that this vision from God was important, and he realized that God was at work in his life, and he knows that God will continue to make it plain to him. He knows that the extraordinary vision that he just had has something to do with his ministry of the gospel. And he doesn't have to wait long to see how the, get this, to see how the deeper meaning of the vision unfolds. The men from Cornelius are at Simon's house and they are seeking for Peter. And so in verse 19, your next blank, Peter is pondering. He's pondering the deeper meaning. Verse 19 says, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. To ponder means to give serious thought to. It means to think about deeply. It means to think about something thoroughly. Peter is reflecting on the vision from heaven. And I think what's going on is Peter saying, hey, is this meant just to be about dietary law? Or is there something else I should know? Is it just the diet only as there's something else going on? And so he's just thinking about it and he's praying about it and he's meditating on it. And oh, by the way, isn't that what we ought to be doing with God's word? Shouldn't we be meditating on it and thinking about it and reflecting on what we're reading and saying, God, I know that you're speaking through your word. And I, I don't, I don't want to find some hidden meaning that's not there, but help me understand exactly what you're saying because I want to live it out. This pondering is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's what Joseph did. After the angel announced that Mary was going to give birth to Jesus in Matthew 1.20, it says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That verse says, but as he considered these things, as he pondered, same word, he pondered, he thought about what the angel was saying. He had a decision to make. He wanted to make sure he's hearing correctly from the angel. Peter's doing the same thing. In God's sovereign timing, and while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit says, behold, three men are looking for you. The Holy Spirit, as we know, at times spoke directly to the apostles and even to Philip. As we read a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 8, verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And this is one of those times where the Lord had prepared Peter with the vision and he had told Peter that the three men were looking for him. And somehow this was going also to help Peter better understand the vision that he had just been given. So it's going to all come together here. Verses 20 through 23, your next blank says, Peter is practicing hospitality. He's practicing hospitality. Verse 20, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Verse 21, and Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So in this passage, these last few verses, Peter comes down from the roof where he was praying. He did not wait any longer, but greeted the men who were looking for him. And this is another example of God preparing both parties for an incredible work. Remember when we saw uh, Paul's conversion, he prepared Ananias and he prepared Saul. And in this case, he had prepared Cornelius and he had prepared Peter because he's going to bring that together. And you don't know what God may be doing in your life. He's preparing you to be a voice of truth 
and a, and a, and a, 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 you know, a preacher of the gospel, a, an ambassador of Christ, he's preparing somebody else for you to fit with that other person he's preparing to bring about gospel transformation. So Peter, he comes off the roof. He's not waiting any longer. He prepared Cornelius. He prepared Peter for what was about to happen. And so Peter says, I am the one that you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? The man go on to tell Peter about Cornelius, which we've already learned about. Notice the repeat here that he's a centurion. He's an upright man and he's a God-fearing man. He's well-spoken of by the entire Jewish nation. But before Peter goes with these three Gentile men to see Cornelius, something interesting happens. He invites them in to be his guests. Now remember, because of the separation of dietary habits, you did not do this. Gentiles and Jews did not eat together. It just simply didn't happen. But he brought them in. Remember, food was being prepared. So we can assume that they ate together. They also stayed the night. This is Peter practicing hospitality, but not just simply in the way you or I might when we say, hey, you want to come over for lunch after church today? This is reaching out to a different culture, to a different people, to someone that in the Old Testament they were not supposed to do, not mix and mingle in this particular way. And now Peter's realizing, oh, I see from this dream, not only are our dietary restrictions removed, but now we need to fellowship with these Gentiles. We need to share the gospel with these Gentiles. And so Peter's practicing in hospitality for the purpose of evangelism. In fact, the NASB here says he provided them with lodging, hospitality, lodging. The word lodging is used also, interestingly enough, in Hebrews 13, 12, which says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We also read about one of the qualifications for an elder, which would be that he would practice hospitality, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. So Peter gave his unexpected guests the red carpet treatment, showing them the work of God in his heart, not to call anything common that God had made clean. And here we learn not only is there a change of dietary restriction as we have seen in the transition from the old to the new covenant, but there is also a mystery that has been revealed. The Gentiles are to be included in the church. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians as we close. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and we'll look at this maybe in deeper, a little bit deeper next week as we complete the story of Acts 10. But basically, this is the mystery that's been revealed. Way more important than those mysteries we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. This is what is going on. Ephesians 2, 11 and following says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So we just simply saying Jews circumcised their kids, Gentiles didn't. There was tension that existed from between these two groups of people. Verse 12, remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 12 is just showing the, the, the fertility futility of Gentile ever trying to reach their way to heaven because they were outside of God's covenant people. But then what happened? In the new covenant, verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. By what? By your dietary habit? By your ritual washings? By adhering to Old Testament specifications? No, 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 no. For now you've been brought near by what? by the blood of Christ. That's the inauguration of the new covenant. That's the whole point of the redemptive thread of the Bible, that God would save lost and dying sinners, that he would glorify himself by sending his son to die in your place. And when he takes over your life and you become a Christian through repentance and faith in him, verse 14 says, for he himself, that would be Jesus, is our peace who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You remember at the temple, there would have been a dividing wall where the Gentiles could be on the outer courts. They couldn't come into the inner courts. And there would be a sign there that would say, anybody who comes in past this point must die. Because there was great division that was set up. 
But now, through Christ, we're all made one. We're made one. That dividing wall has been broken down. There is no more hostility. Verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so he's abolishing the old covenant, all except, I would say, for the moral law, which we see in the Ten Commandments, but we'll talk about that more at a different time, but he's abolished all these other restrictions and these ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, that's the new Christian, the church, the new person, the one who's in Christ, one new man in the place of two. So you have Jew and Gentile, now you just got one new man making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's like, hey, you Jews, you have to be saved through Christ. You Gentiles, you have to be saved through Christ. And now we're one. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. He's like, look, I don't care if you're a Gentile, you've been outside the covenants of promise your whole life, or you grew up eating kosher food like Peter, you need Christ. And he preached peace about Jesus Christ to those who are way outside and to those who are right there. And for through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. We see this in the apostles, uh, the epistles, uh, like we just read, but I just like seeing it illustrated in this narrative in the book of Acts through this vision that Peter had. This is the progressive revelation. We have some revelation, God gives more revelation, he gives more revelation, he gives more revelation until the end of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, then the canon's closed. And then God reveals from his word to us what he wants us to know on a daily basis. But the mystery again is that Christ dwells in every person who trusts him by faith. And he makes it possible for Gentiles to come into the family of God, into the church. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I want to invite you into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're here, you may be like, Adam, you lost me somewhere between the mystery of the sailing stones and eating the bacon. Let me make it real simple for you. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to come to him. That in your own self, in your own self-worth and on your own efforts, you will never make it to heaven. God demands perfection. He is a holy God. And the problem is we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. And that's why God sent his son, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law perfectly, to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven and he's praying for his church. And who knows, he might be praying for you at this very moment, that you would come out of darkness into light and that you would leave your life of rebellion, your life of intellectuality, your life of moral standards and realize I need Jesus. I can't get to heaven any other way. In fact, I'm ashamed of how I've been living my life. I wanna be born again. He extends his love to you. And he extends his mercy to you. And he desires that you would come to know him. You could do that this morning. At the end of the last song, we'll have a few people standing by that back door. And we'd love to just talk to you for a little bit about how you could become a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If if you're here this morning and you know Christ, I just want to remind you that we are to all be one in Christ. No matter what our background is, no matter what our preferences may be, if we're in Christ, meaning believing in Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, and that he is our cornerstone, then we are all joined together and we're growing together into a holy temple in the Lord. And I'm just appealing to you this morning that you wouldn't let anything come in between you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your children, you or other people in this church, that if there be any division, that you would say, you know what, we need to make that right. We're one. We're one. The animosity that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles was probably way greater than whatever broken relationships you've had. And if they can get through it and come together as one people, by all means, may we be blessed with that same unity 
And that if there's an issue going on like that in your life, I'm just encouraging you to think about it, pray about it, get counsel for it. Let us help you. Come back to the cross and realize that's my brother, that's my sister. I want to be one. The revelation is out. Jesus has revealed it all. There's no more mystery left. It's all answered in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him this day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to do a deep dive this morning on Acts chapter 10. What a wonderful story that we're certainly familiar with, but it's just fun to learn more, to grow more together as a church as we want to consider these principles and as we want to consider how we can love you and love others. And so I pray this morning, God, there be somebody here who needs to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would move in their heart in this very moment. And I pray, God, for the rest of us here at the church who have maybe been Christians for years, that we will be reminded of our unity in Christ, that whatever differences and Christian liberties that we hold that would be different would not separate us from loving you and loving one another in a way that would bring you glory and that would be built on the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you. May we live our lives for you this week, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.